We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. God, thank you that none of us are in this room by accident this morning. Uh, We're here because you brought us here. And that is true regardless of where we are on the spectrum of belief. Whether we sit in this room convinced of the things we have been singing and praying or whether we come utterly unconvinced with a thousand questions or whether we come having once believed that these things are true and wondering if we could ever believe again. God, we are here because you are a God who is active, a God who, as we sang earlier, you are at work even when we can't see it and even when we can't feel it. And so we give you thanks right now that you are present in this room, that you are working, that you have brought us here because you have good news for us. And we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear it and hearts to receive it. Would you do this? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning again. Uh, Last week we started a new series, a new sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the nine marks that God wants to cultivate in your life and my life. Um, Friends, Christianity is way more than just praying some prayer and asking Jesus into your heart and being forgiven, and that's it. No, that is just the beginning. God wants to form you into the image of his son as you come into a living relationship with him. And as his spirit enters into your life and begins to change you from the inside out, Jesus says in John 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. You will be changed. Your life will be different. You will be transformed. You will see the fruit of the spirit happening. And it is slow. We talked about this last week. 
It is gradual. It doesn't happen overnight. But it takes a lifetime. And it is not complete until we are with Jesus. So dear Christian, do not grow discouraged. This series is about the life that God is inviting you into. And this is why we're actually calling it the beautiful life. Um, I heard Warren Buffett, maybe you know Warren Buffett, who, you know, very wealthy investor. He's, he's the fifth richest dude in the world, okay? I heard a quote from him last week. He said, if you want to know how to live your life, write your own obituary, and then you begin to reverse engineer it. And what he's saying is, if, if you really want to live a life that is meaningful and significant, a life that's beautiful, you've got to start at the end and work your way backwards, because it's at the end where we actually realize what really matters in life. I've been to a lot of funerals. I'm sure many of you in this room have. I've noticed something about funerals. There are some things that people never talk about at funerals. They never talk about how much money somebody had. They never talk about how successful they are. They never talk about how impressive their resume is. They never talk about how many uh, followers they have on social media. You know what they talk about? They talk about how loving that person was, how kind, how patient, how gentle. You see, the reason you and I, we need this series is because the fruit of the Spirit points us to the beautiful life. It's the path to the beautiful life. And the good news for us this morning is that God wants to give you this life. Uh, so we're coming to the first fruit this morning, which is the fruit of love. And we're looking at this very famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is probably the most famous passage on love. It's actually called the chapter of love in the Bible, the chapter of love. Uh, it is the most famous one. Even if you haven't really read the Bible that much or been around the church a whole lot, you've probably heard these verses read. You probably heard them at a wedding. That's cool. It's a great passage to read at a wedding. That is not what these verses were intended for. Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Corinthians, is writing a letter to the church, to Christians in the city of Corinth. Which means that these verses are not for newlyweds. They are for anyone who would identify as a follower of Jesus. They are for all Christians. So we're going to talk about love this morning. And I, let me just, a quick word here. This is, I think this is a really appropriate topic. Um, I didn't plan this, but what a great topic for Mother's Day. Um, I know we've got a lot of moms in the room. Uh, this is, let me just say, this is a day of joy for some. Uh, joy because of the mom that God has given to you or because of the gift of being a mom that God has given to you, but it is a day of sorrow for others. It is a day of sorrow for people who have lost that love, who have lost moms, who have longed to be moms but never have, who've had really broken moms. And so let's talk about love. Um, there are three things I want us to look at today from this passage. Why love matters, what love looks like, and how we can get more of it in our lives, how we can cultivate this fruit in our lives. So why love matters, what it looks like, how we can get more of it. First, why love matters. Uh, we see this in verses one through three. I'm hoping we had this. Oh, yes. I love you, Chris. Thank you. This is, oh, Jess. Thank you, Jess. 
Um, big hand for our AV people up there, actually. Yep. Okay, so uh, I want you to notice in these verses that what Paul is saying here is that uh, love matters, and it matters more than anything else, actually. It matters more than having great spiritual gifts. So he says in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. It doesn't matter how, and then he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if, so stop there, it doesn't matter how gifted you are, if you don't have love, it does not count. Paul says it matters more than spiritual gifts. It matters even more than having great faith. Look at this. He says, if I, uh, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And then he says it matters, listen to this, it matters more than giving to the poor. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain Nothing. Now, that might sound strange. How could you actually give to the poor without love? Wow. There are all sorts of ways to give to others that is actually not about helping them, but it's actually about you feeling better about yourself. We virtue signal all over the place in this city. There are ways that you can give to the poor not for their sake, but actually for yours. So, but Paul's point in all of this is he's saying, love matters more than anything else, and it is, that means it is to be the primary mark in the life of a Christian. The primary mark. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say, church? Oh, man, okay, we're going to preach on that next week. Uh, he said love. Love for God and love for others. And then he says in John 13, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is the primary mark of the Christian. And I know some of you are here today and that is the, the exact opposite of what you have experienced with Christians in the church. But this is what Jesus is saying. It is the primary mark. Why do you think, think about this, we get a list of nine fruits in Galatians 5. What is the first one that Paul gives us? Love. Love is primary. Francis Schaeffer, who was a theologian and a pastor in the 20th century, he wrote this little book called The Mark of a Christian. I encourage you to get it if you're looking for a book to read. Very short. He wrote this little book called The Mark of a Christian, and he, in that book he calls love, listen to this, the final apologetic. And I love that phrase. Because when we think of apologetics, we think of like intellectual defenses and evidence for the existence of God and the, you know, the truthfulness of Christianity. And friends, those things matter, and we actually want to be a church that is dealing with those questions and those objections, that is actually engaging them thoughtfully and winsomely. There is a place for those things. But Francis Schaeffer says in this little book, he says the ultimate evidence for Christianity is not found in the quality of our arguments or the quality of our reasoning, but it is found in the quality of our love. He says this. He says, as Christians, we must have an intellectual apologetic. The Bible commands it and Christ exemplifies it. Yet without Christians practicing love, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen. 
even when we give proper answers. We must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is love. Love is the final apologetic. It is the primary mark of the Christian, and the question is why? Why is that the case? Why is it the primary mark? Why does it matter above everything else? Why does Paul say it matters more than spiritual gifts? It matters more than faith. It matters more than how much you read your Bible or pray or go to church. It matters more than caring for the poor. Why does it matter more than anything else? Why is it the primary why is it to be the primary mark of the Christian? And here is the answer. Because love is the primary mark of God. First John chapter 4, verse 8 says this. God is love. I want you to know there are two places in the New Testament where you find that sentence. God is. Uh, the other one says God is light. That's another sermon for another day. But 1 John 4 says God is love. It doesn't say God is loving. It doesn't say God is loving. It says that God is love, which means that the very essence of God the very nature of God, the very core of God is love. And everything else about God is an expression of his love. God's justice is an expression of his love. God's anger is an expression of his love. God's commands are an expression of his love. God's holiness is an expression of his love. His promises are an expression of his love. Love is the primary mark of God. And this is why Jesus says, for any who would call themselves followers of his and who would claim to know God, it is to be the primary mark of our lives as well. Are you feeling convicted yet? It's only going to get worse. But then it's going to get better. That's how we do it in this sermon. Okay. Uh, guys, I had to like sit in these verses all week. Okay. So it's okay for you to feel a little uncomfortable this week. Um, but this leads us to a question, and actually to the next point, which is, if love matters more than anything else, what does love actually look like? What does love actually look like? Now, our culture, we talk a lot about love, but there is a lot of confusion about what love actually is. A lot of people think that love simply means tolerance. That's a big one in Oakland, actually. Um, it reminds me of, do you remember that bumper sticker? You don't see it as much uh, anymore, but that bumper sticker that said coexist on it, and it had all those different political and religious kind of symbols on it. Um, this is how a lot of uh, people in Oakland and the Bay Area think about love. We think love is, is tolerance, but tolerance, to listen, tolerance is important, but tolerance is not the same as love because love is, is more than just coexisting. Love is more than just accepting someone else. So some people think it's tolerance. Others, when we think of love, we think of romance. There is a reason that The Bachelor is on season 27. <laughs> wow, and some of you have seen every single season. Uh, if statistics hold to be true, a third of this room has seen at least one episode of The Bachelor. Uh, my, I have a good friend. He, he calls The Bachelor the McRib of television, you know, the McDonald's sandwich. He says, it's not real, but millions of Americans enjoy believing that it is. That's good. Okay, some of you get that later. Uh, 
is way funnier than you responded to. Um, uh, we, listen, we, we're very confused about what love is. Uh, if, you, if you were to go do a Google search, what is love, you would get 15 billion results. I don't know if that's true. I read that somewhere this week. But that sounds about right. I did my research. I Googled it. Um, uh, we're very confused about love. Is there anywhere that we can go to learn what love actually is? Verses 4 through 7. Paul tells us what love is. He gives us a definition of love. We can pull these verses up now. The first thing to notice in this is that love is way more than just tolerance, and it is way more than just romance or emotion. Because when Paul defines love, he gives us 16 verbs. Love, 16 things that love does. Which means that love is not primarily an emotion, but an action. It is not primarily something that you feel, but it is something, according to 1 Corinthians 13, it is something that you do. Something that you do. Now, it is Mother's Day, and many of you have plans for after the service, and so I would be in big trouble if we walked through all 16 things. I'm smarter than that. I've learned some things in my life. So I want to just look at this, what love looks like under three buckets, okay? I want to talk about what it looks like in our relationships, what it looks like in our church, and what it looks like with our city. So what does it look like in our relationships? It actually looks like two things. It looks like serving, and it looks like forgiving. Let's talk about serving for just a moment. Verse 5 says, love is not self-seeking. See it up here right in the middle? Love is not self-seeking. Um, that means that love always takes the low place. Love doesn't say, how can you meet my needs, but how can I meet your needs? Love does not seek to be served, but it seeks to serve. Now, I know a pastor who, uh, he has this great story of when he first uh, realized he wanted to marry his wife. He had asked her out on their first date. She had said yes. It was the day of the first date, uh, a couple hours away, and all of a sudden he gets a phone call from his dad. Uh, they live in the same town, and his dad says, I need you to come home. Uh, our basement is flooded with sewage. Uh, their house was at the bottom of a, of a big hill with other houses up the hill, and some of the sewage lines had broken, and so their basement had filled not only with their sewage, but all of their neighbor's sewage, okay? And so he, his dad is like, I need you to come home and help me clean it up. So he, he calls this woman, and he says, look, I've got a bail on this date, and here's why, um, he heads to his dad's house. He puts on, you know, rubber gloves and rubber boots, and he's, like, down in the basement in, like, knee-deep sewage. And he's cleaning things up when all of a sudden he hears someone coming down the stairs, and it is this woman. And she is in rubber. She's got rubber gloves on and rubber boots on, and she has come to get in the mess and help him clean this up. And he said, that was the moment. That was the moment. Uh, let's hope he didn't propose to her right there in the sewage, but be like, no, 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 I, I get a do-over. We're going to do this again. Uh, love means serving. This is not how we tend to think about love. Uh, let me just ask you a question this morning. Who are you serving in your life right now? 
And who is God calling you to serve that you aren't? What are the needs of others around you? Whether it's your roommate or a neighbor or a spouse or a child or a friend, what are the needs around you and how are you intentionally moving out to meet those needs? Love means serving, but it also means forgiveness in our relationships. The second part of this verse says, love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Forgiveness. And forgiveness is something that our culture is in desperate need of at the moment. Um, Vox, the online platform, the online news platform, about a little over a year ago, actually, they came out with a whole series on forgiveness. And there was this one article on cancel culture in particular. And the title of the article was this. It said, everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. That is the moment we live in. Everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. John Perkins, who was the great civil rights activist and a Christian, he once said that, that our generation, this generation, is the first one to turn hate into an asset. See, everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. Hate is an asset, but Jesus offers us a different way. And that is the way of forgiveness. If you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, you heard me talk about the recent mass shooting in Nashville. And this one hit home for me because my, uh, my friend is actually the pastor of the church where that shooting happened. His nine-year-old daughter, Hallie, was killed in that shooting. And there were actually, so I've been following it very closely kind of in the weeks after, and there were, there were seven people killed in the shooting, if you, if you remember. Three of them were children, three of them were staff at this Christian school, and then the seventh person was the shooter. And one of the adults killed was a woman named Catherine Kuntz, who was the, the head of the school, actually. And at her funeral, her husband said these words about her. He said, Catherine would be embarrassed if our admiration of her distracted us from other wounded households. She was a champion for others and among the first to recognize when someone is isolated and lacking support, burdened by shame. And so therefore, honoring Catherine compels us, listen to this, it compels us to remember a seventh family, equally wounded and the loss of someone dear to them. We count on the Lord and our community to support them generously extravagantly, and to offer them the hope that sustains. We are trusting in the strong and loving embrace of a strong and loving God to take each of the seven that died and heal their wounds and their souls. What radical forgiveness. What incredible love. This is what love is. Love means forgiveness. I mean, who, friends... Who, who are you angry at? Who are you holding a grudge against? Who are you not at peace with? Whose wrongs are you keeping a record of? Maybe it's an enemy. Maybe it's someone who has really wounded you. And by the way, forgiveness does not necessarily mean re-entrusting yourself to someone who's hurt you. That's a whole other sermon. 
But maybe it's an enemy, maybe it's someone close to you, maybe it is someone in this room. And the Bible never says that forgiveness is easy. It is one of the hardest things you will ever do. And if you've ever been really hurt, you know this. The Bible never says that it is easy, but it says that it is something that we are called to do. And if you are struggling with that this morning, if there's someone in your life that you are struggling to forgive, let me just give you one practical application. Pray for them. Start praying for them daily. There's a reason that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It is hard to hate someone when you are constantly praying for them. That's what love looks like in our relationships. What does it look like in our church? And I want to just focus on the first thing that that Paul says here. Well, actually, the second half of that first line, he says, love does not boast, it does not envy, it is not proud. You know why our world is so divided right now? You know why things are so polarized? It's because of pride. Pride always leads to division. Whether it is pride in your ethnicity or your race or your heritage, pride in your politics, pride in your socioeconomic status, or even pride in your religion or your morality. If any of these things become the basis of your identity or your unity, it always leads to division. And you see, what the gospel does is it kills pride. It kills pride because it says we are all equally broken and equally loved. It kills pride because it says no one is so good that they do not need God's grace and no one is so bad that they cannot receive God's grace. And this is why the Christian gospel has the unique power to create a diverse community. Friends, we in this church are united by one thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is gathering for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. I had a, I had a good friend who came to our five-year anniversary service a couple weeks ago. It was his very first time coming to a worship service here. And he's not a Christian. He's actually a part of another uh, faith community. Uh, and he said to me, after that service, he said, in my house of worship, everyone looks the same. And he said, but that, that's not the case in this church. And he was so perplexed. And he said, but this is what the gospel does, is it rips down all of the barriers that our world erects to divide people. It brings them down, and this is why the Christian church, for all of its mess and imperfections and flaws and blemishes, has been the single most diverse religion that the world has ever known. That is not an opinion, that is a fact. Historians and researchers will tell you. And you see, we, let me just say this, I love what God is doing in this church. I love it. I never could have imagined our church would look like this when we first started. Praise God for what he is doing in this church. Praise God, amen, and we still have a long ways to go. But praise God, but I want you to know something. For as much as we talk about diversity, and we talk about it a lot, 
Diversity, I want you to know something. Our goal is not diversity. You say, what do you mean it's not diversity? Let me tell you why it's not diversity. Friends, the Oakland Coliseum is diverse. Have you been there lately? There's not a lot of people showing up, okay? Like, not a whole lot of people. But uh, we're actually going, by the way, on June 16th. Free tickets. This is a little bit of an infomercial mid-sermon. Free tickets. Res Oak Night at the A's. We're going to, like, double the attendance of the A's game when we go. It's going to be amazing. Um, But you see, go to the Oakland Coliseum. Go to an A's game. It is diverse. We are called to be more than just a religious version of the Oakland Coliseum. Our goal is not diversity. Our goal is love. Our goal is not simply to tolerate one another or to just get a bunch of people who don't look like each other into a room once a week and sing some songs next to each other. Our goal is to open up our lives to one another our hearts to one another, our homes to one another, our bank accounts to one another, our stories to one another. This is what love looks like in the church. It is unity in the midst of our diversity. All right, now what does it look like in our city? What does love look like with our city? Paul ends some of the kind of most famous words here. He says, love always protects always trusts, always hopes, and love always perseveres. You know, it is hard to hope for our city right now. I'm just going to be real honest with you. It is hard to persevere in loving the city right now. Things are very, very broken. I've lived here almost 20 years, and things are very, very broken right now. My car window was smashed last week. I mean, where is the respect, people? For the clergy, you know? I'm like, come on. (laughs) And this has happened, uh, you know, if you've got a car, this has happened to you, right, in Oakland. My car window gets smashed. I call the repair guy to come out and fix my car window. He picks up the phone. He's actually working on another job. He's out somewhere in Oakland. I don't know where he is. He's working on another car. He says, oh, let me get my computer so I can get you in our system. And I can hear him. He's got me on speakerphone, and he says, where's my computer? Oh, somebody stole my computer. You cannot make this stuff up. I thought, Lord, why my car? And thank you for this sermon illustration, all in the same moment. That's what I thought. That's how very twisted pastors are. Um, Friends, Oakland is hard to love right now. This is a broken city. We have a housing crisis. People are being pushed out of neighborhoods and homes that their families have lived in for generations. We have a growing epidemic of homelessness. We have a teacher's strike that's been going on for almost two weeks. I don't know if you know this. We have teachers that are severely underpaid. You know, we We partner with MLK Elementary, and we take breakfast to their teachers once a month on the last Friday of the month. And we talked to one teacher there who said, she said, I I can't afford uh, to live here. She's homeless, and she's a teacher. And let me tell you, this teacher strike, we've got kids 
who are missing even more school. They're already behind from COVID. We've got, (laughs) the list is so long. I mean, violence is too frequent. Police is too few. Money is too scarce. The A's are leaving. Everybody's left, man. Um, And I will tell you, when things are this broken, it is very easy to want to leave the city. It's very easy to disdain the city. It's easy to look down on the city. It's easy to just sort of tolerate the city. But friends, if you live in this place, you are here because God has brought you here. And if you were a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear me say something. God calls you to love the city. God loves the city. And he calls you to love the city. And he calls me to love the city. He calls us to persevere in our love for the city. And he calls us to hope for the city. And he calls us to go out and seek to meet the needs of the city. And this actually is what the very earliest Christians were known for. It's what they were the most famous for. That's not necessarily true right now. My prayer is that God would use this church and other churches in this city to change that narrative. Because it is what the earliest Christians were known for. I want to read a letter for you that was written by a Roman historian. Uh, His name was Aristides. And he wrote a letter to the Roman emperor in 137 AD. And this is what he said. He said, it is the Christians, O emperor, who have sought and found the truth, for for they acknowledge God. They do not keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not covet what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them. And in this way, they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. They live in the awareness of their smallness. Every one of them who has done, who, every one of them who has anything gives ungrudgingly to the one who has nothing. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as a real brother. And if any among them is poor or comes into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. This, O emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians, and this is their manner of life. Love is more than just tolerance, and it's more than just a feeling. Love is being a force for good in this city that God has brought you to. And the question is, is what is going to get us to love like this, to love the city like this, to serve like this, to forgive like this, to pursue unity like this. And that brings us to the last point, which is how can we do it? Where do we get the power to do it? Um, It is not enough for me to just tell you to do it. I mean, how helpful of a sermon is that? God says to love, go do it. God says to forgive, go do it. God says to serve, go do it. That might change you for a minute, but it will not last, I promise you. And so you could walk away today saying, well, I just need to be a little more patient, 
a little more kind, a little less self-centered, but it is not going to make much of a difference in your life. The reason is because love cannot simply be commanded. Love cannot just be coerced. If, if you turn back to Galatians 5, when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. He gets to the end of that list, and then he says this really interesting little phrase. We didn't talk about it last week. But he says, against such things, there is no law. You cannot enforce love. That is not how love works. You cannot command love. No. You first have to experience love. This is what all social scientists have told us about children. If they do not grow up in an environment of love, they do not have a good chance of growing up to be loving people. If you do not grow up in an environment of love, it can really mess you up. You can grow up to become very unstable and even violent. You see, the only way to love is not by trying harder or having someone tell you to do it. The only way to love is by being loved and experiencing love. And the question is, is where are we ever going to experience a love like the one we have just read about today? I want you to think about your relationships for just a moment. Is there anyone that you know whose name you could insert for the word love in this passage? Anyone. You know, if you, if you really want to feel connected, uh, convicted, try inserting your own. I'll put myself on spotlight here. Brent is patient. My, I can feel my wife nodding her head no in the back. <laughs> Brent is kind. Brent does not boast. Brent does not envy. Brent is not proud. Brent does not dishonor others. Brent is not self-seeking. Brent is not easily angered. Brent keeps no record of wrongs. It's terribly convicting. Because if we know ourselves at all, we all fall terribly short. And you see, even our best relationships, I mean, some of us, we've had really loving relationships in our life. God has been so kind to us. Maybe it was a parent or a spouse or a friend or whatever it is. But you think about it, the people, even the people who've been most loving in our lives, even they fall short of this list. The last thing that Paul says is, love never fails. See, even our most loving relationships cannot give us a love like this. You know why? Because eventually, everyone's love fails. Because they die. They leave you. It's a love that doesn't last. There is only one person who can give us a love like we have read about today, and we find him at this table. In 1 Corinthians 13, we get a definition of love, but at this table, we get a demonstration of love. We find a God who came to serve who left the riches of heaven, who gave it all away, and who came into this world and who took the low place, and who himself said, I have not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many by dying on a cross. And we find a God who forgives. That is what this table is about. A God who loved us while we were yet his enemies. We find a God who longs to be gracious to us at this table. Do you know this? God longs to be gracious to you. He says that there is nothing you have ever, when you are united to him, when you trust in Jesus, there is nothing in your life that you have ever done and there is nothing that you could ever do under the sun that could ever separate you from his love. He is so forgiving. And his love perseveres. His love never fails. No matter how broken we are, no matter how messy we are, no matter how much our love for him comes and goes, his love for us never wavers. And we find a God who does not simply tolerate us. That is what this table says to you and me this morning. It says that God does not simply tolerate you. God delights in you. God smiles at you. And he rejoices over you. And you see, this is the love that every single person in this room was built for. It is the love that every single person in this room longs for. And it is the love that can actually turn us into loving people. People who serve. People who forgive. People who pursue unity. And people who love our city. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread... And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what wondrous love we find at this table what wondrous love we find in the person and work of your son. God, this is the love that we are all hungering for. And I pray that you would give us an acute sense of that this morning. Help us to feel our need so that we might come and experience this incredible love that you offer to us because of what your son has done for us. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.